Welcome to MedVet, a podcast about medicine, vet science, and everything in between. I'm Simeon, a resident at Ipswich Hospital. And I'm Esther, a final year vet student. Each episode explores a topic of interest that is important and relevant to both our disciplines. We hope you enjoy listening and also learn something along the way. All right, this is our first episode. Yes. So today we're going to be talking about uh, diabetes mellitus. Um, so let's start with the case. Mm-hmm. So we have Mrs. Jardiamet. Uh, she's a 55-year-old female, Indigenous Australian, who presents to a GP as a new patient for a general health checkup. She hasn't seen a doctor in many years, uh, doesn't have any significant past medical history, um, and has a family history of type 2 diabetes Um, with her mum having had the disease. So on examination, her BMI is 30, and the GP decides to do just some routine blood tests uh, and also does a HbA1c, which comes back as 6.8%. And what's a normal BMI for a person, do you think? Um, Normal BMI is between 18 and 25. So it's a bit high. Yeah. Okay. So she falls in the obese category. Mm. Well, this lady also happens to have an obese cat called Sugar, and she decided to bring Sugar to her local vet um, because she noticed Sugar was showing some signs of being a bit lethargic, urinating more, uh, drinking more water. And with Sugar, uh, she is a 11-year-old domestic short-haired female spade cat and she has a body condition score of 8 out of 9, which is basically morbidly obese for a cat. Um, and with that, uh, the vet did a quick physical exam and found that, yeah, there was clearly um, a very high body condition score. The cat was very lethargic with um, a poor quality coat as well. Yeah. Alrighties. So... I thought the best place to start um, would be to define what diabetes is. So, put simply, diabetes is inadequate insulin secretion or action, which leads to hyperglycemia. So it's an endocrine condition, um, which is characterized by high levels of sugar in the blood. Uh, So, in humans, there are a number of different uh, diagnostic criteria which we can use to diagnose diabetes. Um, And these criteria are defined based on the blood sugar level at which diabetes-specific complications occur. So it's quite a clinical... um, Yeah, it's built on a clinical uh, reason in terms of these criteria. So these numbers aren't just willy-nilly sort of things. They have an actual basis for it. Yeah, that's right. Yep. So let's run through those. Uh, So our first criteria is a fasting BSL of 7 millimoles per liter or greater on two or more separate occasions, or number two, a two-hour postprandial BSL of 11.1 millimoles per liter or greater, um, and that's on an oral glucose tolerance test, or number three, uh, a patient that's symptomatic, and we'll talk about the symptoms a bit later, plus a random BSL of over 11.1, or Uh, Number four, a HbA1c of over 6.5%, as we had in our case today. What is 
HbA1c. Like we don't use this in veterinary medicine. So. Yeah, so HbA1c um, looks at the levels of glycated hemoglobin in the blood. So basically hemoglobin with sugar molecules attached. Um, and what happens is in diabetes, you get chronic hyperglycemia, and that leads to increased levels of non-enzymatic glycation of hemoglobin. Um, that occurs over a period of time, um, around two to three months, which is actually the lifespan of red blood cells. Um, so essentially what you're looking at is a long-term um, picture of someone's uh, glucose control. Um, yeah, so that's that's what HbA1c is. Mm, okay. Then your second point you mentioned um, the was it the oral glucose test or OGTT? Yep, oral glucose tolerance test. Oh, okay. Yep. Yeah. How does that one work? Yeah, so um, it's not as popular anymore, to my understanding. But basically, what happens is uh, the patient will be given a uh, oral load, an oral load of uh, glucose around seventy-five grams. Um, and that's administered to the patient when they're fasting. And so essentially you take the BSL when the patient's fasting, they take the oral glucose load, and then two hours later you take um, the BSL again. And um, that two-hour postprandial BSL can be used to diagnose diabetes. Mm, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, with the animal side of things, it is definitely less structured. Um, they don't have as specific sort of like our numbers that we're looking for, although they still exist. But with cats and dogs mainly, there's three major criteria that you're looking for in uh, diabetes. And that would be number one, fasting hyperglycemia, which is looking at more than 120 milligrams per deciliter for glucose levels. Uh, number two is fasting glucosuria. And number three is elevated fructoxamine, which is important for cats. Uh, the reason being why is because with cats and very rarely dogs, you can get something known as like a stress uh, hypoglycemia. So basically in any stressful event, such as going to the vet, um, it is a natural response for blood glucose levels to rise and also for glucose to end up in the urine, which happen to be two factors that you're looking for in diabetes in cats and dogs. So what we can do is use fructosamine, which should not be elevated uh, in a stress event. So glucose will be elevated, fructosamine should be normal. So if you look at a cat that's stressed with elevated fructosamine, then you can edge towards it being a true diabetes case. Um, but if it's not, then you have to consider doing serial blood glucose testing. When the cat calms down, you take another sample and then again a few hours later to see the blood glucose levels and how they change. Yep, so that's basically the three major things that we look for in terms of diabetes in animals. Right. So it's quite different to humans. Mm. Yeah. Um, that actually reminds me of... Uh, so I'm on my general medicine rotation right now and my consultant... Um, we we're talking about uh, how to diagnose um, Cushing syndrome, so mm -hmm. where you have high levels of cortisol um, in the blood. And yeah, interestingly, apparently um, you can do a midnight cortisol level, um, a single midnight cortisol level um, to diagnose uh, Cushing syndrome. But obviously <laughs> that's quite problematic considering that 
you know, you talked about stress events. Yeah. Um, any stress uh, to the human can lead to increased cortisol levels in the mm-hmm. blood. And so that's why you have to go for that midnight cortisol when the, when the patient's sleeping. Problem is, um, you, you'll have to draw a blood sample. Um, so apparently what you can do is you get the patient to come to hospital, you pop a cannula in, um, <laughs> you get them to sleep overnight at the hospital. And, you know, in my mind, I was imagining like a nurse creeping up to the patient, um, blood tubes at the ready. You just do a <laughs> It's like a horror movie. Yeah, yeah, basically, yeah. yeah. So you're drawing some blood from the cannula, just trying to make sure you stay as quiet as possible so that the, uh, so that the patient doesn't wake up, but... Yeah, but um, I, I assume they don't really do that that often. No, yeah. I so hope not. Usually, <laughs> we'd use the uh, dexameth- dexamethasone suppression test. Oh, okay, yeah, same um, But uh, I found a paper on it apparently that it's a hundred percent sensitivity with a midnight cortisol. So mm, there you go. Well. Anyways, that's not diabetes. <laughs> um, let's have a chat about classification. So yeah. in humans, uh, there are three main types of diabetes. Uh, so you've got type 1 diabetes, type 2 diabetes, and gestational diabetes. Which animals, technically speaking, have those three types as well, except di- gestational diabetes is very, very rare. So we don't really have that as an issue. Yeah. But yes. Yeah. Cool. All right. Let's run through each of those briefly. Um, so type 1 diabetes. Uh, the pathophysiology here is related to inflammation of your eyelet. Um, cells, which are the functional unit of the endocrine pancreas. So these cell, uh, these islets get inflamed, um, which leads to their destruction. And what happens is you get a, an absolute deficiency in insulin. So the key issue here is not enough insulin. And yeah, for type 1 diabetes, we don't really call it type 1, type 2. In vet science, it's more based on species. So for type 1, this exact description of islet cell inflammation destruction, you see that more with dogs. Cool. Um, Alrighties, type 2. So the key issue here is insulin resistance, which is defined as a decreased ability of insulin to act effectively on tiger tissues. And so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that's cats instead of dogs right. for type 2. So dogs type yeah. 1, cats type 2. Mm-hmm. That's cool. a pretty easy way of thinking. Yeah. Uh, what's interesting is, though, in type 2 diabetes, even though the underlying... Um, issue is the insulin resistance. Uh, apparently type 2 diabetes doesn't actually develop until insulin secretion becomes inadequate. Um, so if you think about it, the insulin you have insulin resistance developing, so the pancreas tries to compensate by creating more and secreting more insulin, um, but that compensation can only last to a certain degree mm. um, before the islet cells fail to compensate. And we'll touch more on that later as well. Yeah. Yeah. And just quickly, gestational diabetes is a temporary carbohydrate intolerance during pregnancy. um, And that's related to the uh, change in hormonal status of pregnant women. Okie dokies. So uh, that's the uh, different main types of diabetes. Um, There are also some secondary causes of diabetes, which are important to consider um, whenever we're working up a patient. And um, I've tried to group the uh, causes in humans into four uh, main groups. So uh, we'll run through those. Uh, so number one is related to the pancreas. 
um, where you've got insulin insufficiency. So a few examples of that include chronic pancreatitis, uh, CF, so cystic fibrosis, as well as obviously if someone's had a pancreatectomy where they've had their pancreas removed, you're going to have an insufficiency of insulin. Is that a common thing to do? Um, so uh, surgery is not really my area of expertise, but uh, you would remove the pancreas in some conditions. So for example, pancreatic cancer, you can remove uh, part or, uh, or the whole pancreas. Um, and usually those patients will have to go on, um, take pancreatic enzymes for the rest of their life to replace the um, function of those enzymes that they've lost now. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that's the exocrine pancreas. The exocrine mm. pancreas mm -hmm. is yeah. responsible for your digestive enzymes and things like that. Yeah. Uh, okay, so that's number one. Number two, uh, again related to the pancreas, but now we're looking at a mixed picture of insulin insufficiency and or impaired action. So this includes things like your hemochromatosis, which is an issue with iron storage, um, and pancreatic cancer. Number three are our hormonal disorders, um, which lead to impaired action. So here we're thinking about the counter-regulatory hormones that balance out the action of insulin. So things like um, adrenaline, so uh, our catecholamines, so in a pheochromocytoma, which is a tumor that produces catecholamines, um, you can get um, secondary diabetes. Uh, Cushing syndrome, where you've got um, excess cortisol, as we mentioned before, as well as a glucagonoma, which is a, a glucagon-secreting tumor. So those are sort of our main counter-regulatory hormones, and when those are too high, you can also get the development of diabetes. Mm -hmm. And then last of all, number four is medications. So always consider medications as a cause of not just diabetes, but a, a lot of different diseases. And here again, we're looking at either insulin insufficiency or impaired action. And our common culprits include antipsychotics, corticosteroids, and antiretrovirals, among others. And yeah, honestly, it's really the same for animals as well. Of course, there are particular ones that are less common that you see. Um, especially pancreatectomy, we don't do it very often, but it can happen. Um, but things like Cushing syndrome is extremely common in dogs uh, and sometimes cats too. And diabetes is definitely something that we have to be concerned with as a secondary disease that can develop. Um, but yeah, everything else I think is about the same for animals. So yeah, it's a pretty comprehensive list. Great. Alrighties. So we thought we'd focus on type 2 diabetes today, uh, given that it's one of the most important uh, chronic conditions in our uh, community and society, mm -hmm. um, mm. both here in Australia as well as abroad. Um, and it's increasingly becoming a problem um, since people are living with this disease for longer as well. Yeah, like, and it's the same thing for animals too. Like, it's just almost a parallel sort of increase. Because, for example, like, in my one week that I had, I was doing consultations and about eight out of the 10 patients that I saw, most of them were dogs, but a couple were cats, they were basically all overweight. So, and that's a pretty big factor for diabetes in animals. And that's pretty telling for how important diabetes is becoming now, yeah. even in the veterinary field as well. Mm. That's why our case is a diabetic lady and a diabetic cat. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Alrighty. So, um, we thought the best way to approach this was to go back to the basics. So we'll chat first about glucose homeostasis. So how is glucose managed in the body? So the sort of three key factors that affect 
uh, glucose homeostasis. So number one is energy intake from ingested food. So obviously when I eat an apple, I'm going to have an intake of glucose. Mm. Number two is hepatic gluconeogenesis. So the, the liver is responsible for producing glucose um, when the body requires it. And number three is peripheral tissue glucose uptake and utilization. So that's predominantly in our muscles. So obviously when our muscles need um, to work, um, they'll uptake glucose um, to use it for energy. Yeah. Cool. Uh, do you want to chat about how insulin works? Um, well, in the very basic sense, because this is uh, not comprehensive in every detail for the production of insulin. Um, but basically, uh, your pancreas has various different groups of cells within its islet. You've got your beta cells, which is what we're going to focus on. Um, and these beta cells are the ones that do produce insulin. Um, and they are stimulated by a, is a basal sugar level, we don't really use this term, of more than 3.9 millimoles per litre. Yeah, so it's, yeah. it's not a basal sugar level. It's basically, um, the idea is that theoretically, um, and this is what the textbooks say, go complain to Harrison's if you think uh, it's wrong, but uh, essentially uh, BSL of above 3.9 is supposed to stimulate the uh, secretion of insulin. So it just mm. gives you a sort of a ballpark figure for when insulin's actually released in the body. Yeah. 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 Um, just with insulin production, a um, bit of a side note, in the production of insulin, um, there's also the production of a molecule called C-peptide. Yes. And C-peptide can be clinically useful, although I haven't really seen it used that much myself. Um, but uh, apparently we can use, it's a useful marker of insulin secretion, which makes sense because it's produced alongside insulin. And it also is helpful when we're trying to differentiate between um, endogenous and exogenous um, insulin in the context of a patient with hypoglycemia. So let's say a patient's coming with hypoglycemia and you're trying to work out, okay, um, is it a problem with too much endogenous insulin or has this patient accidentally given themselves too much insulin? And obviously, if it's an endogenous problem, your C-peptide levels are going to be raised because C-peptide is produced alongside the insulin. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And... I'll just talk a little bit more about the function of insulin. So if we think about, you know, how glucose is made, then we can understand a bit more exactly what insulin does as its function. So three major ones. One, it has decreased hepatic gluconeogenesis. Two, increased peripheral glucose uptake. And three, decreased lipolysis. And what that does overall is you get a net decrease in your blood sugar levels. After you have a big meal, you have a lot of candy, whatnot, that insulin kicks in and that blood glucose will drop back to a normal level. Yep. Yeah, so um, as we mentioned earlier, there are some counter-regulatory hormones which balance out the action of um, insulin. And one of them is glucagon. Um, so we said earlier that insulin is produced and secreted by beta cells. Glucagon is secreted by our alpha cells in the pancreas. And um, in type 2 diabetes, we have elevated levels of glucagon. So you have more glucagon acting to release glucose um, into the blood. Um, yeah. So mm. that's insulin and that's glucagon. So if you think about, say, just remembering the insulin function, and with type 2 diabetes, you're going to get insulin resistance as the start of the progression of type 2 diabetes. Um, basically, how insulin resistance 
develops and appears in the body is basically the opposite of all of the insulin functions. So say, in, for example, increased hepatogluconeogenesis uh, is the opposite of the insulin function, which decreases hepatogluconeogenesis. Um, so that's how the three different ones work. So you get decreased peripheral uptake and you also get increased lipolysis as well. Yep. And these three things correlate with um, some of the uh, characteristics of type 2 diabetes we see in these patients. So um, the increased hepatic gluconeogenesis leads to increased in fasting plasma glucose levels. The decreased peripheral uptake of glucose leads to postprandial hyperglycemia. And the increased lipolysis uh, contributes to that insulin resistance that we mentioned. Mm. Um, increased lipolysis also leads to increased synthesis of VLDL in the liver, so very low-density um, lipoprotein, and that contributes to the dyslipidemia um, that we observe in uh, type 2 diabetes patients. Yeah, and that's why when you do have a look at biochemistry results in a diabetic patient, you'll often see like there will be lipemia within the sample as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So with that, do you want to talk a little bit more about the impaired insulin secretion in terms of genetic and met metabolic considerations surrounding that? Yeah. So as we mentioned earlier, insulin resistance is the underlying pathophysiological mechanism in type 2 diabetes, um, but it's the impaired insulin secretion um, which is required for the actual development of the disease and there are two key factors um, involved with that so it seems like there is some sort of genetic defect in type 2 diabetes which leads to a defect in beta cell function as well as beta cell mass so the beta cells don't work properly and there are not enough of them to produce the insulin uh, on top of that, number two is the metabolic environment. And by metabolic environment, we mean glucose toxicity, so obviously the hyperglycemia, lipotoxicity, as we mentioned before, you get dyslipidemia. And because it's an inflammatory process, um, you get pro-inflammatory cytokines. And mm. these three things impair the function of the islet in the pancreas. So that's what leads to the impaired insulin secretion. There's a specific example of that metabolic environment that causes impaired islet function, um, which is called amyloidosis, which you'll see in cats quite often. Um, and if you remember from previous, we did mention how C-peptide is secreted alongside insulin. Um, and there's also something known as IAPP, which is also secreted with insulin and C-peptide. And that's known as islet amyloid polypeptide. Uh, and this IAPP, what it does is that it induces satiety, um, which kind of makes sense in the sense like you will eat a lot of food and that insulin gets released and that will control those blood sugar levels. But you also need to stop eating or they'll just continue to rise. So that satiety will hopefully stop you from continuing your eating basically um, but in some cases this could be a genetic cause but you'll get this chronic secretion or misfolding of that IAPP and with this misfolded IAPP you'll get this amyloid deposition in those pancreatic islets and this is cytotoxic so these little depositions will destroy that islet and lead to that insulin insufficiency that you'll see in type 2 diabetes. Alrighties, 
Uh, so that's the pathophysiology of type 2 diabetes. Uh, let's move back to something a bit more clinical. Uh, so what we're going to do now is run through the risk factors for type 2 diabetes. Um, so there's a whole bunch of different risk factors, um, but I've tried to narrow them down to um, eight um, in humans, sort of eight key risk factors. So number one is advanced age. So the older you are, the more likely you are to get type 2 diabetes. Although this is actually changing with increased prevalence um, of type 2 diabetes in overweight children and adolescents. Um, so that's something um, that's been yeah, a pretty big challenge um, for our primary care physicians as um, well as um, families to, to manage. Um, yep, so that's uh, our first risk factor. Uh, number two is obesity, as we just mentioned. Number three is sedentary lifestyle. Number four, family history and ethnicity. And by ethnicity, um, I mean in the Australian context, uh, our South Pacific Islanders, as well as Indigenous Australians. Uh, number five is hypertension and dyslipidemia. Number six, history of gestational diabetes or impaired glucose tolerance. So you can think of impaired glucose tolerance um, like pre-diabetes. So it's defined as a fasting BSL of less than seven plus a two-hour postprandial BSL of 7.8 to 11. So it quite uh, hasn't quite met the diagnostic criteria for diabetes, which is a two-hour postprandial BSL of over 11, um, but it's getting there. Um, number seven is a history of PCOS, polycystic um, ovarian syndrome, um, which is a which is a gynecological condition um, found in young women. And number eight is low birth weight or a child of a diabetic pregnancy. Um, and honestly, for cats, it's very, very similar for the top three. So like advanced age, obesity, sedentary lifestyle, cats have exactly the same thing, uh, especially cats that are you know, older than nine years old. They laze around all day. They eat way too much and they don't exercise, um, which happens to be quite a few cats these days. Um, and yeah, so really any breed can be affected though. So that's a bit of a difference from the human side of things. Ethnicity and such and like breed predisposition is um, not all race for humans. You don't see that in cats very much. Breeds in humans. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds a little bit crass, but anyway, uh, like breeds in cats, you don't really see anything that uh, can point a cat towards being more likely to get diabetes. Although Burmese cats are overrepresented in Australia, but uh, it's not too, too common. It's like, it shouldn't be that major factor that you're looking for, but otherwise, yeah, overweight, old and poor diet, sedentary lifestyle. Yeah. Alrighties. Um, so we forgot to mention this before, but uh, this episode is part of what will hopefully be a two-part series on diabetes. So today's episode is on um, pathogenesis and clinical presentation. And then uh, next, the next episode uh, will be focusing on management and complications of diabetes. So we thought we'd finish off this episode by looking at the clinical presentation. Um, so in terms of humans, uh, the number one clinical presentation is actually asymptomatic. So a lot of patients with diabetes um, have the disease picked up just on routine health screening, like Mrs. Jardy met uh, in our case. Um, but for patients who are symptomatic, um, some of the common symptoms include number two, polyuria, number three, polydipsia, so peeing too much and drinking too much water. Number four, weight loss. Number five, fatigue. Number six, weakness. Number seven, blurred vision. 
number eight, frequent superficial infections, and number nine, delayed skin healing after minor trauma. And that, other than the last three, um, it's really similar for cats, basically the same. Um, routine health screening is not a very common thing unless, say, for example, your cat's going to undergo a surgery or uh, there's another issue that's going on. They'll probably do like a, a full, uh, complete blood count and biochemistry. You might pick up glucose, but often it's really you don't see it until the later stages. Um, and we will talk about the complications of diabetes, uncontrolled diabetes, um, in our next episode. Um, but often cats do present this way with like diabetic ketoacidosis um, and diabetic neuropathy. These things cats often present because these other clinical signs like polyuria, polydipsia, which in Sugar's case, um, her owner did notice, uh, weight loss, fatigue, weakness, they're pretty subtle. And unless you're paying a lot of attention, you often don't really see that. Um, but in general sense, these uh, clinical signs are very similar, as in with humans, especially that polyuria and polydipsia. All right. So uh, we thought we'd just explain a little bit more about um, why you get these symptoms in diabetes. So with polyuria and polydipsia, um, what happens is the hyperglycemia in diabetes leads to osmotic diuresis. So if you think about it, you've got high levels of glucose in your blood, um, it's processed by the kidneys, and that high osmotic load um, within the tubules will um, draw water into the tubules, and um, that leads to uh, more frequent urination. Uh, in terms of the weight loss, the fatigue, and the weakness, um, you get urinary loss of glucose, which contributes to those symptoms, as well as muscle breakdown. And with the blurred vision, this is an interesting one. Um, not exactly sure how it works, but you get changes in the water content of the lens, um, which leads to that blurred um, vision. So yeah, that's mm. that's an interesting one. And I, I'm sure like it's possible that animals will get blurred vision as well, but you really wouldn't notice that on a day-to-day -day basis. Because unlike people, animals can very happily live with like slightly poor vision. Like as long as they can run and see things in front of them, it's fine. But another complication that you might see, um, not in cats, but dogs is diabetic cataracts, which I know people can get too, um, but we won't discuss it in this particular episode because that is also technically speaking a complication. Yeah. Well, that's it for our first episode. Um, thanks for tuning in. Uh, we'll just uh, go through some take home points. Um, so diabetes mellitus is uh, a disease where you have inadequate insulin secretion or action, which leads to hyperglycemia. Uh, there are three main types of diabetes um, in humans, type 1, type 2, and gestational diabetes, whereas in animals it's more classified by species. Uh, insulin has three key actions. Number one, decreased hepatic gluconeogenesis. Number two, increased peripheral glucose uptake, and number three, decreased lipolysis. Alrighties. Uh, so, yeah, if you liked what you heard today, um, please like, share, comment. All the words. Subscribe, all those things. Um, <laughs> but in all seriousness, um, please do drop us uh, a review uh, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Um, yeah, it'd really help the podcast out, and hopefully we'll see you in the next episode. Uh, we will see you in the next we episode. We will see you in the next episode. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so see you guys then.